For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Earlier this week, the leader of the state Senate said he wanted a more thorough approach to vetting nominations from the governor to the state Senate. This would be a far cry from years past when most nominations sail through without questions or debate. But it also comes at a time when the governor has many more nominations with the addition of agency heads as well as boards and commissions. Ryan, is this a welcome idea or will it slow down the process? Well, I think that if it does slow down the process, that in and of itself may be welcome. And, you know, this is the uh, this is the assertion of power by the legislative branch. We've seen you know, Governor Stitt has probably more than any governor maybe in the history of Oklahoma, but you know, certainly in the last several decades, has asserted the executive power like no other governor. And uh, the what we're seeing, you know, whether that's just through the sheer force of his personality and you know, being you know, up uh, in legislative offices negotiating deals himself, uh, or um, you know, through legislation that has consolidated actual ability for him to make unilater- unilateral decisions in some instances with who heads these state agencies. So the legislature, and I've, I've talked about this uh, as these pieces of legislation move forward, that the legislature at some point is going to have to assert itself or it's going to risk losing a lot of oversight and accountability to the executive branch. You know, they, they may like Governor Stitt and they may be simpatico on who they want to fill these key, uh, these key positions, but that may not always be the case. You may have a Democratic legislature. You may have a Democratic governor at some point. You may have Republican governors that have a different idea of a Republican legislature and being able to assert that separate but co-equal branch of government status that the, legislate, that the legislative branch has under our state constitution is incredibly important. So taking this seriously, vetting these folks, asking a lot of questions, even if it slows it down, I think it's important for uh, the the, de- the democratic process in Oklahoma. Neva, and I think this this process I think does match with what the governor is doing. I mean, when you have a governor now with appointments of 160 plus appointments, ultimately that will need Senate confirmation. Uh, he's put forward I think 66, 67, somewhere in that time that number uh, so far, but only a handful have been uh, have been uh, uh, confirmed. So I think by setting in place what we We've got a, a couple of things happening simultaneously. We've got a new governor coming in with a lot of appointments, just like we see at the federal level, a president with lots of appointments that have to be made. And it's a, and it's a very fast track trying to get folks in place so that they can continue to get the work done. Um, but I think the vetting process, with the Senate taking this approach that's very similar to the U.S. Senate, uh, by making sure that uh, each of these nominees goes and individually meets with the with the members uh, uh, on the committee beforehand, the committee has an opportunity to really sit and ask some thoughtful questions if there are issues, or just getting to better know and uh, understand the background and whether this person really has a handle on uh, the position that they're, they've been nominated for, and and then I think prioritizing the, this, the scale of the uh, nominees, uh, as uh, Pro Tem Treat said, uh, where if you have uh, folks that are going to hold uh, in state government agency heads, uh, cabinet uh, cabinet secretaries or members of the Board of Regents of uh, OU, OSU, uh, that these folks obviously take a higher priority because they're in a much greater position of responsibility. And I think, when, as we've talked about before, the governor equally has 
has uh, clearly taken a very thoughtful process in making these uh, appointments and selections because they come back on him ultimately. We mm-hmm. talk about uh, with the power goes the responsibility of making sure that these folks are people that you want uh, to actually uh, carry out what you envision and and uh, have goals for uh, for those particular agencies and and uh, key leaders. So I think I think we're seeing a lot of things happen quickly. I think the long and the short, though, in terms of the process is they'll pick up steam, as Treat said this week. I mean, we'll pick up a lot of steam in the next two weeks. I think we'll see a lot of these roll through. Uh, and frankly, I think uh, with uh, very probably very few exceptions, uh, they will be uh, unanimous, uh, uh, unanimously moved through the committees and on to the, the full vote in the uh, Senate. And, and you know, I don't think that that's going to change. We've seen these, uh, these appointments in the past usually get the green light. You know, there's, there's really no opposition. What we may see in this is that a more thorough vetting could be uh, could result in folks being withdrawn. You know, so I don't think that we'll move forward with contention. I don't think this is going to be a situation where we see like in the United States Senate where we move forward with contentious nominees and you, you have like a really divided vote. I think more than likely, you know, during that vetting process, if you don't have some consensus, you're probably going to have folks withdrawn because you don't want to, what we don't want to move is uh, towards a, a system that is much more partisan and much more contentious and, and uh, really use this as an opportunity to build relationships between lawmakers and these agency heads. And oftentimes they float those trial balloons long before they even nominate someone to make sure that there isn't anything that's going to backfire they're going to have uh, you know they're going to have uh, opposition that they weren't aware of so I think I think that uh, I I think that this is a process that the public by and large doesn't pay much attention to but I think it is a serious process within the 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 ranks of not only the legislature but uh, in the governor's office making sure that these things go uh, not only smoothly but take the as you say it's not a it's not time driven it needs to be properly vetted so that everyone makes sure that at the end of it they know who these folks are the oklahoma high court is losing another justice as the u.s senate approves the nomination of patrick wyrick to the federal bench in oklahoma city with the resignation of john reef at the end of this month it puts new governor kevin stitt in line to put two new people on the oklahoma supreme court neva this is a pretty big deal for the new leader it's a it's a big big deal and i think uh, first of all i mean from the uh, from the standpoint of um, uh, getting this appointment through, it's taken a year. And I think we only saw it uh, this week, uh, and it was on a party line vote, Republicans only voting for uh, um, uh, Justice Wyrick, but that that it came as a result of a rule that was pushed through the Senate last week uh, by uh, Senator Langford and others who that allowed for a vote for the for, the, for his nomination and for some of these other district judgeships. I mean, getting these things hung up where they cannot move these uh, uh, these through the process in the Senate is just regrettable. And, and a year is a long time, and now we still have another uh, another uh, position still vacant uh, in the Western District, and we'll see how long that goes. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's clear that there's always going to be this partisan divide. There's always going to be this give and take uh, in the United States Senate, but th- there has to be a better way. A better way to ultimately move these folks through so we can get these positions of these positions with uh, not only filled but not have this just abrasive
positive back and forth exchange that seems to be nonstop in the past year. Right. Justice Weirich's uh, confirmation by the United States Senate, this is a part of a 40-plus year plan of the Federalist Society and other conservative legal organizations to build a conservative legal bench. And boy, are they doing it. I mean, in Trump's you know, first couple of years in office, you know, he has flipped a couple of uh, uh, circuit courts uh, ideologically and in pretty dramatic ways. Other circuit courts have changed ideologically quite a bit. You know, when he came into office, and we, we often talk about the United States Supreme Court, those are the ones that get all the attention. But when Trump took office, there were 100, uh, 107 additional judicial vacancies over and above the United States Supreme Court. Ronald Reagan, by contrast, had 35 unfilled, and Obama had 54. And Trump has moved with great speed. The Obama administration did a, an abysmal job of advancing judicial nominees and left a huge number of these vacancies just because they weren't aggressive. What we've seen in the uh, in the Trump administration and the the Republican Senate under Leader McConnell is they are moving with great speed and really won't let anything stand as a roadblock in their way. It may have taken a year to get Weirich on the bench, but it's part of a much larger movement to create a conservative judiciary that frankly, I mean, Donald Trump could be uh, defeated in the 2020 presidential election, but his legacy, uh, the longest lasting legacy of this presidency is going to be in the courts. And, you know, we're talking 20, 40, 60 years, uh, because we're, we're seeing folks appointed like Justice Weirich, who are incredibly young, uh, going on the bench. They're going to be there for a very long time. And even after they're gone, the precedents that they set are going to live on beyond their tenure on the bench. Meanwhile, what does it mean for the Oklahoma Supreme Court? There were two, two nominees from, from Stitt. It means immediately that the, that Governor Stitt is going to be able to start making his mark on the court. I mean, these will be very significant appointments. Uh, and I think uh, when you when you look at uh, Justice Reef leaving and now with the uh, now with Justice Weirich uh, moving, uh, some say lateral, but moving to the uh, to the federal bench, it, it will it will present it, uh, present an opportunity for on a couple of fronts. And I think the interesting kind of uh, thing in the mix here that uh, that will have some legislative consequence is this redistricting um, proposal that is still alive mm-hmm. and moving through the process. Uh, clearly, would appear you know on the on the surface to be kind of a rural urban uh, a split uh, philosophically. Uh, even among uh, Republican members, but the governor's weighed in and certainly has been lobbying on the, on this issue. One has a point of view that he wants to see um, realized. So, uh, how that influences this process ultimately could make a difference on where that justice, uh, where the new justice could come from. I mean, geographically. Mm-hmm. So, there there are a lot of things at play here, and certainly, I think when we talk about the courts, I mean, you're right, Ryan. Uh, philosophically. M- Oftentimes, particularly partisan voters, I mean, when they look at a president, a president, uh, or a presidential campaign, the the makeup of who that person is in the White House and their influence on the Supreme Court and all of the of the federal judiciary is a significant point. I mean, uh, polls clearly show that the voters do understand philosophically: is it going to lean to the left or the right? Is going to mirror who who's in the White House? And so this has been significant with the Trump administration. And Ryan, it does show that elections has its consequences. If uh, Democrats lose and, and Governor Stitt is the one who's picking the Supreme uh, absolutely, Court and I think it remains to be seen uh, exactly who's going to have Governor Stitt's ear on this uh, on this appointment process. I I don't know. I mean, during the campaign trail, anytime you talk about the courts, obviously, you know, the one question that everybody gets is abortion. Uh, you know, they want to know, are you going to appoint pro-life judges, whatever that means? Uh, you know, I, I think that 
um, you know, that, that, you know, whoever he appoints will probably check that box in, in some way, uh, shape or form. You know, but at the, at the end of the day, what else really is guiding the way that he's going to select these judges? I, I remember visiting with uh, Governor Brad Henry shortly after he left office and talking about his legacy. And he didn't skip a beat whenever he said one of the most important legacies that he left were the judicial appointments that he made while he was in office. And we're, I mean, many of those Henry judges are still on the bench today, but you know, some of them are beginning to roll off. And, you know, so these, these are the really big decisions that are going to outlast both tre- President Trump, the well, last governor. And in a nine, in a nine member court, I mean, it's with, with two early appointments in the state, in the state uh, first term, uh, it would be interesting to see, will there be others? I mean, there's a lot of speculation. I mean, that, that, that there w- very well could be a third coming along, you know, in, in the not too distant future, whether that happens or not. I think the significance for the governor and what we've seen already in his appointments and nominees is clearly uh, a situation where the governor wants to be the person making that decision. He'll take a lot of input, but I, at the end of the process, I think it's the governor making up his own mind of who he feels most comfortable with that can move his vision forward for Oklahoma. Oklahoma City swears in its newest council members, including Ward 2's James Cooper, who is not only the first openly gay counselor, but also the first African-American elected outside of Ward 7. Ryan Cooper was welcomed in a rally Monday night by the LGBTQ community, but also Mayor David Holt. Mayor David, well, and let's let's think about the contrast of just where we are in 2019. First of all, congratulations to James Cooper, uh, Cooper uh, to the new city council uh, woman, Joe Beth Hammond. Uh, uh, you know, right now we have five of the city council members under 40 right now. I mean, this is probably, not probably, this is the most diverse and inclusive representation of Oklahoma City uh, uh, residents on their city council that they've ever seen. Uh, so, I mean, Joe Beth, congratulations. James, congratulations. You know, Nikki Nice, who, who came in in the special election. I mean, these are all incredible, incredible moments for the, the city of Oklahoma City. And David Holt, you know, I've, I've been telling folks uh, that David Holt, I think, has the, the most promising political future of any person in the state of Oklahoma right now. And what he showed on uh, that on swearing in on the march, uh, the day before the swearing in, he wasn't just you know, standing on the steps of City Hall. He came down, he was out talking with folks. He was out embracing James Cooper. He said, we love James Cooper. We think he's awesome. Compare that to 2001. Go back to 2001 when Kirk Humphreys, mayor of Oklahoma City, literally had to be sued to allow the Cimarron Alliance to put up pro-LGBTQ banners uh, for Pride that year. Uh, You know, he was saying that, you know, we can't have this. It's an abomination. This is not representative of our community. And, you know, he it was, you know, tantamount to obscenity to even recognize that uh, Oklahoma City had LGBT residents in its midst. And so from 2001 to 2019, when Mayor Holt is out embracing the first openly gay uh, city council member in Oklahoma City, what a sea change. I don't think I could have ever imagined that we would have had progress happen this fast. Neva. Well, and I think it reflects the kind of the changing demographics of Oklahoma City. I mean, we've talked about that for a long time, the political ramifications of it turning purple. I mean, you know, the the uh, the changing, the kind of the not only the changing demographics, but in terms of looking toward the future, when you have a when you have a younger mayor and you have someone who is is uh, high energy casting uh, 
you know, this not only big vision for the city, but really putting the time and energy behind it. And I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, I think he certainly is a, a politician uh, who is uh, kind of out there every day. You almost can't miss this guy. I mean, wherever you turn, I mean, in, uh, and however you get your information and your news and and uh, and your communication, he is someone who is out there telling the story of Oklahoma City, telling it here and telling it across the country and, and internationally. So I think it's a bright future for Oklahoma City, a lot of things happening in a big way. Now I think with, with these new members comes the opportunity to build a consensus with all of the, with all of the members of the council uh, to try to determine what are the next steps in the next maps and all of the other things that are on the horizon. It will take, it, it will take shape in a way that it can't just be driven by uh, age or 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 any other you know any other factor. It has to be what is best for uh, for the total picture of Oklahoma City as a whole. And I think that's where you know ward representation is important. There's been a lot of discussion through the years that maybe there needs to be additional uh, in in re- restructuring, and maybe this comes with redistricting uh, in 2021. Maybe we look at the uh, the ward ward map and we decide that uh, that there's a different configuration to allow for even broader representation down the road so uh, but all in all I would say you have to applaud the effort of these uh, of these folks that not only have taken the initiative to run and be successful but now looking forward what they can do for the uh, future of Oklahoma City. It was also cool to see James Cooper uh, at the steps of, of this rally with uh, now former councilman Ed Shadid a, a former political opponent mm-hmm. of his and so when you look at James Cooper and, and the seat that he's taken over I mean what you know go back to Sam Bowman and then you know kind of in the, the vein of, of Ed <laughs> yes. Shadid yeah. and then you know the, the Pete Whites uh, on, on the city council I mean the, the they used to be kind of the outsiders right you know you, you had Shadid uh, and White or Bowman you know they would they would be kind of the contrarian uh, on the council but now I think that we have a council made up of folks of community activists of teachers of people that you know not regardless of their their demographic background their their occupational background the the work that they've thrown themselves into before they come to the council i think we're going to see a very different tone at the city council and and i think that that will match uh, a lot of the tone that's set by mayor holt lawmakers were busy this week leading up to another deadline lawmakers had to get legislation out of the opposing chambers committee i just want your thoughts on any measures which did or didn't get through the latest deadline neva let's start with you <clears throat> well i think you know one of the high priority bills that Speaker McCall had uh, earlier in the week uh, went down in flames nine uh, with a zero nine vote in in committee and in the uh, Senate Transportation Committee, and this kind of set up a scuffle back and forth on uh, what happened in terms of bills moving in or out uh, uh, as a result of that. I think it's and this the, is having trains stop at that's the, right, the, and I and I think and I think it's a I think it's a case of where now we're seeing um, in this kind of this last throes of what's going to finally make it through the process and stay alive and and be able to uh, uh, come down to the to, to the wire and possibly uh, make it to the governor's desk. I think we have a situation where that coupled with there's been this conversation that the budget the budget uh, uh, negotiations had been going fairly smoothly maybe we were 80 percent was the figure that uh, that we were hearing that it was about 80 percent complete after kind of these skirmishes and these give and takes and some of the committees this week uh, you know some people suggest that that number's gone down it may be more uh, 50 to 60 percent maybe it's not quite going to be so uh, easy uh, and quick sledding so I think I think I think what we have now is this normal process with a lot of new faces. Let's remember, it's new for the governor's 
people and the governor himself. It's new for a lot of lawmakers that are freshmen going through this uh, this uh, first session. And we'll see what that really looks like in terms of the outcome now that we're going to start talking about money and where these allocations are going to finally come. Right. You know, I think criminal justice reform is, is still you know alive. There are many mm-hmm. important bills, uh, pretrial justice reform, reforming the bail system, reforming the way that juries are allowed to impose alternatives to incarceration. Retroactive you know, to Retroactivity. Eight, yeah. Uh, of seven eight, you know, those things are all still alive, but they all have significant procedural hurdles ahead of them. So they've they've passed out a committee. They have floor votes. There's probably a conference committee ahead of them. And what we're seeing now is, you know, organizations uh, and and a coalition, Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform, that's made up of a number of uh, organizations that have been working on this issue for many years, and they're out front with the legislature. And legislators are now beginning to have some concern about. Um, you know, what, what are these things going to ultimately look like that we vote on? And a lot of those decisions right now, unfortunately, as, as we've seen in years past, are starting to be made behind closed doors. And the folks that are behind those closed doors, you know, there's some hope there, but there's also things to be discouraged about. You know, Tim Downing, who's a former state les- state lawmaker, former assistant. Assistant Attorney General, no friend of State Question 780, and one of the the biggest uh, uh, leaders in the opposition to criminal justice reform is part of this working group now in the Secretary of State's office uh, that is working with the governor to help craft criminal justice reform, which seems counter entirely to Governor Stitt's message of wanting to shake things up. He wanted to get rid of the status quo. Well, here you've got this career government bureaucrat who's made a career out of opposing criminal justice reform and carrying water for district attorneys. He's now in that mix, you know, so. Meanwhile, you had criminal uh, prosecutors actually going to the Capitol the, uh, earlier this week and saying, you know, we're forgetting about the crime victims when we pass these correction reforms. Well, and they're, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, I, I think that uh, having, saying that crime victims uh, are, are justification for uh, unreasonable criminal sentences, unreasonable criminal justice policies, that's just, you know, that's a red herring. And, you know, I think that they've, they've rolled that out in years past where they try to say that, you know, what we're doing here is a disservice to victims. What victims want are safer communities. They want justice. And what we have right now just simply isn't justice. What the real question right now, because you hear this out at the Capitol right now is uh, from folks that are trying to slow down criminal justice reform movements is that we're moving too fast. And I think that the real question is, how is it that you can defend the status quo? How can you say that we're, we're not moving fast enough? Because that's the real question, because the status quo right now is indefensible. And unfortunately, we're starting to see some of the same defenders of the status quo, like Tim Downing, continue to rear their head at the state capitol on this issue. And Ryan and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.